Michael Osterlink here, talking to Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. She's an osteopathic physician. Her interests are in functional medicine with an emphasis on healthy aging, optimized body composition, and sports performance. Her areas of medical research focus on the interface between memory, cognition, brain health, and obesity. How are you doing, Dr. G? Good, good. How are you? Excellent, excellent. Uh, I, we know each other through SealFit on Beable Mind Academy. And uh, I've been fortunate to get to know you and learn all your interests and all the research you've been doing. And I think you have a lot to offer our listening audience, so I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, before we jump into some of the areas that I'd like you to talk about, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, your training, your interests? Yeah, sure. Uh, like you had mentioned, I'm an osteopathic physician. Um, my undergrad is in human nutrition, vitamin, mineral metabolism. And uh, I really was so interested in, in the way that the body worked in terms of nutrients. And uh, I then decided that I would go to medical school and I chose uh, osteopathic school because I really wanted to understand the way that the body functioned in terms of not just um, the physiological aspects but also the muscular aspects. Then I did two years of uh, residency in psychiatry and uh, three years in family medicine, and then did a postdoc at Washington University in St. Louis in uh, nutritional sciences and uh, obesity, geriatrics. I looked at the interface between cognition and the brain and nutrition. Fantastic. Well, that's one of the things we're going to talk about is nutrition. Um, our last uh, conversation, you talked about circadian rhythms and uh, and how, you need, how we as human beings need to think differently, both about circadian rhythms and understanding what they are. Uh, also, how nutrition plays a role in, in them um, and in our health and well-being. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, you know, we're really far removed from nature and, and the way that we think about feeding and kind of our environment. And I started looking at some of the data and there's really two, and I can send you this, the, these studies, there's two studies in particular that really caught my eye in self. and. Um, one was they had rats that were fed exactly the same diet, and these were really good researchers. Um, they fed rats exactly the same diet, and what they did was they, they altered their circadian rhythm, so rats are typically nocturnal. Um, what they did was they um, had them stay awake during the night and eat during the day, similar to shift working. And right. what they found was that although people were fed, although the rats were fed exactly the same thing, the rats overall became obese, they had different brain morphology, so they showed that the night the rats that were up during the day had um, shorter dendritic length, and they had less cognitive flexibility, and their insulin glucose ratios, the, the amount of insulin being produced went up in the rats that had the altered rhythms, and uh, that was really interesting uh, to see that. And then. You know, I started really thinking about my patients and some of the patients that I had, they, they did everything right, but they still were just not, they were still inflamed and just not getting better. Um, and then I started exploring some of the, the data with time-restricted feeding. There's a lot of good data out there that shows improvement in obesity and improvement in insulin levels and cognition all with restricting within this circadian rhythm, right? This like eight to nine hour window. And the reason they think it works 
is because there's this metabolic entrainment, right? So there's an inherent knowingness in the body, right? So um, muscle, adipose, insulin, all work on their own rhythm. And there's really two ways to entrain these these clocks, right? There's the master clock and the suprachiasmatic nucleus and then the peripheral clocks. And the master clock is really entrained by light. So when light comes in, um, you know, it kind of sets off this cascade. But there's also what we know, what is also known as slave clocks or these peripheral clocks. And the biggest way to entrain these clocks, it's through food. So when we're just eating chaotically whenever we want, you know, we're sending signals to these clocks to activate and, and the timing is totally off and it creates inflammation and, and just kind of disorder in the body. So when I started restricting my patients to this eight to nine hour feeding window, they got a lot better. They felt a lot better. They slept better. And, um, you know, let me ask you a question. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask you a question because it seems to me that, um, the eight to nine hour window would have been natural to our ancestors, um, just because they went, you know, they were part of the natural systems of, of day and night, light and darkness. And it's only more in modern times with, um, artificial light that we've been able to break that habit and, and the much larger availability of food, if we can call some of it food. Uh, can you speak a little bit about that, how our, you know, how culture and modernism has affected our ability to live more healthy lives? Well, yes. Um, so we do a lot of chaotic eating. Most people don't eat the same time every day. And if this is the way to entrain the clocks, we are skewed by when we feel like we're hungry. There's tons of, like, I, you know, you can be on a treadmill and there's the food network on. Right, all these different stimuli that happens, and then so you have this chaotic eating that happens, and then you also have this these light. So you know where our cortisol should start to be coming down, um, you know, and we should be really like going with the rhythms of nature. There's light, excess stimulation, and everyone is pretty aware of that now. But it, I mean, it's everywhere. It's noise, so it's not you know, it's like all of these things, and it. I think it really ends up affecting us so deeply, you know, in part, I think diabetes, dementia, all of these are, are chronobiological diseases. You know, it's not just eating. It's not just what we eat. It's, there is this um, uh, circadian rhythm component to all these diseases. Right. Can you, can you say a little bit more about the master clock um, and its relationship to the light and dark process, as well as you mentioned the, the slave clock, which has a different um, different different things that influence it. A little bit more detail on both. Yeah, sure. So the suprachiasmatic nucleus is um, is the way that we get light through our eyes, right? So, and that that is um, what sets us up for our sleep wake cycle. Um, and then that kind of orchestrates everything in the body. So it tells us when it's you know time to wake, time to sleep, time to nap, time to eat. Um, and that is entrained by light, right? So it's really important um, to have bright light in the morning and then, you know, kind of dim your, dim your lights as you would in nature. But the interesting aspect is that's only one of the ways to affect these, what's also called these peripheral clocks or slave clocks. These are clocks that are believed to be in adipose tissue, muscle tissue, liver, 
you know, all the organs of the body seem to have work on their own kind of circadian rhythm. So light is one way that affects this to trigger and turn it on, right? So like if you were late at night, turned all your lights on, um, you would send a signal to your body to like, it would be ready to go do something, right? So now you're increasing cortisol, you're increasing, uh, if you haven't eaten free fatty acid breakdown, all these things. But that's only one aspect of what the clock does. The other way to affect the clock, and not so much the suprachiasmatic nucleus, but the, the way to affect these peripheral clocks is through food. You know, what we eat, when we eat it. In, you know, probably even more important is, is initially when you eat it. Um, because by eating, you then stimulate this entrainment um, of enzymes. Enzymes are all believed to work under a clock. So they have specific times that they should be working. And when you just overload the system, you start increasing inflammation. Um, you know, you're not breaking, you're, you're stimulating food to be broken down when, when it doesn't, when it shouldn't be, right? Like inherently, you should not be eating at that time. Does that, does that kind it does. of explain so, more? Yeah, no, so let me ask you, the 18-hour window, does it matter when it starts and when it ends, or is it just purely any time you, you start eating, only eight to nine hours later you should stop yeah. eating, and what so happens? So that's a really good question, because there's what you think of as like a night person and a day person, uh -huh. and I don't have any data uh, to back this up, but from what I've found is, you know, like for example, Mike, are you a night person? Are you a, a morning person or a night owl? Uh, morning. Okay, so for you, I would say start eating early, right? Start eating your early when you know, and then stop later, and then really kind of, uh, you know, pull it back, get ready for bed. But for someone that stays up late, I would have them push their feeding window way back. You know, and then you know, someone could argue, well, Gabrielle, you're in training them to stay up late. But I think that there is something to be said for the inherent biological rhythms and variability within a person, and to really maximize, you know, that's kind of like the art of medicine is really maximizing where they're at and uh, what feels best for them. So it just depends. The first thing I'll do is ask, are you a night person or are you a day person? And if I remember correctly from our conversation, the eight to nine hour window will have positive benefits no matter what your diet is, whether you're paleo primal, vegetarian, eat the standard exactly. American diet. Exactly, and that is what the data is showing, which is incredible. So um, some of the data is showing that they, they have this amazing article in Cell, and I'll send it to you for your listeners, and, and they can read it themselves. It was really well done. And what it showed was that they had mice that were already obesogenic, right? So they were already obese, they were pre-diabetic, and um, just a whole host of other problems. They fed them a typical American diet Monday through Friday. But what they did is they kept the calories the same. It was like, who knows, these mice were going to McDonald's. And they restricted their feeding window eight to nine hours, and what they found amazingly was that just, so they restricted them just during the week, Monday through Friday, and then Saturday and Sunday, they ate at whatever time they wanted, whatever they wanted, right? So it was like ablib feeding. And what they found is they found, a, they found that the diet, that the insulin improved, that the, the mice lost weight, all of their, their markers improved. Right, just by simply restricting their feeding window. Wow. Their cholesterol levels went down, their inflammatory markers went down. Um, and they did this because they wanted to, you know, 
I think that in the um, medical world, right, there's a lot of frustration when it comes to obesity and diabetes. Uh, and we're looking for alternative solutions. Diet and exercise is great, but that doesn't always work. And that, that paradigm of thinking of just like diet and exercise, we need more creative alternative solutions. And one of the solutions, you know, initially when we think about solutions and layers is really restricting the feeding time. So you know, let me, let me yeah. ask you about the, the restricted feeding time. Would, because you, you, the window's eight to nine hours, but would seven hours be even better? Would nine and a half hours be worse? I mean, we're, we're yeah, no, so this is actually really interesting. Um, and so the longer that you fast, they did find that the longer the fast was pushed, the more effective it is. However, um, you know, I come from a protein muscle background. That's, uh, you know, one of my mentors, Don Lehman, uh, who I trained under at the University of Illinois and have worked with ever since. Um, you know, when you do that on a daily basis, uh, you know, you think about muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein synthesis through food is really specific, right? So you need 30 grams of protein. I'm not talking about metric. I'm talking about grams in terms of there's in one ounce of animal protein, there's seven grams of protein. So you need about, you know, anywhere between four to five ounces per meal to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. The more times that you can do that during the day, the more the more healthy your muscle will be, the more you'll be able to stimulate, you know, this, this mTOR signaling. Um, so when you really restrict the, the feeding window, your opportunity, and that needs to be about three hours apart, so let's say you restrict it where you're only eating um, twice a day. That's okay, uh, but you got to make sure that the first meal and the second meal, you know, you're really hitting that protein. So that's that's kind of like the the warning with really pushing the time restriction. Well, how about if you, you push it the other direction though? Seven and a half hours, seven hours. You mean like if they're if they're um, Fasting for a longer period of time. Yeah, yeah. If, if their feeding windows maybe six or right. seven hours as opposed to eight or nine hours. Right. So if you push it, then you then only get the muscle protein synthesis like twice as opposed to three times. So pushing it seven hours, you know, to just be very clear on the intention of how you're feeding and why you're doing it. So that definitely will show improvements in metabolism if you push it to that say seven hours for sure. Um, women tend to be uh, much more sensitive. I, I don't like to have women on time-restricted feeding for any kind of extended period of time, and typically I would only start them one to two days a week um, and spread out, and those are the days that have less activity and, and are lower stress, for sure. Uh, actually, say more about uh, gender-specific uh, uh, time window eating. Why, why, are women should, why should women not do the seven, eight-hour window seven days a week to start with? So I don't have, I think it's really important to, to mention that this is my opinion, that I, I don't uh, have any evidence of this, but from my practical experience, women tend to be more sensitive to intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding. Um, while I do think that there is a, a really great benefit for them, I think that it needs to be very carefully thought out. I think that the way that their bodies handle stress and the uh, restriction in food 
seems to be um, just practically, uh, they're just more sensitive to it. So for them, I would start them out um, five days a week eating, you know, you know, very specific kind of meal plan. And then two days a week, perhaps on a Sunday a, and maybe another day that is low key for them doing a time restricted feeding window. Men seem to do really well on it. Uh, overall, they seem to be able to really push it, you know, I don't want to say seven days a week, but they could. They realistically could, and it, and it doesn't necessarily um, have a negative impact. Again, it depends on the other kind of stressors and also what their goals are, right? So if their goals are um, muscle masking and those kinds of things, then they wouldn't be doing time-restricted feeding. I think time-restricted feeding is a really good first line to kind of decrease inflammatory markers, really um, improve body composition initially, um, seems to be effective. For women, what are your thoughts? Would it be different for a woman who's in the midst of her reproductive years versus an older woman in terms of uh, you know choosing how many days to start with and, and continuing on? That's a really that's a really good question. So if I'm understanding what you're saying is you're wondering the difference between the, the, the older versus the younger. Yeah. So women that are younger that don't have menstrual problems, right, that are not PCOS or trying to get their periods back, um, women that have regular cycles seem to do well on it. Okay. Um, and I would just do them two days a week because I don't think that they need it, right? So the whole point of doing time-restricted feeding is we're using nutrition as a way to um, come up with a solution for a health problem. So if a woman doesn't have a health problem, I wouldn't say that she needs, she, I wouldn't have her do time restricted feeding. There would be no reason. Um, for the elderly or for the older, you know, I'm a geriatrician by training. Right, um, right. So that's a really tricky thing because we like to keep their blood glucose stable. Um, I, I would go very slow with them, but there are some benefits to cognitive improvement when they seem to use um, more ketones, which can happen with the time-restricted feeding. So I would actually, um, it would be really tricky. The elderly, I don't know if I would have them do time-restricted feeding. I typically don't. Um, that's not entirely true. So my dad is a time-restricted feeder. Hmm. But I don't consider him elderly. He's 65, but he's like an ox. Um, <laughs> so I guess it depends on the... Uh, really like the frailty of the person. So for example, my dad, he lives in Ecuador. He walks, if you can't get there by car, you have to, it has to take over three hours to get there. Otherwise he walks. He's crazy. Wow. And he, you know, he weight lifts and he's a really high protein anabolic uh, type diet, but he time restricts his feeding and he does two meals. And those two meals are big. They're around 40 to 50 grams of protein per meal. And he does fantastic. He feels like his brain function is amazing. So l let me ask you about that. So no matter what anyone's diet is, if they do the between the eight to nine hour window, they'll have a reduction in inflammation, yes. increased insulin, insulin, insulin sensitivity, cholesterol yes. reduction, cognitive yes. enhancement, et cetera. But that, let's assume that like that's step one. What would you think would be the optimal diet? So not only would you have those benefits within that restricted window, but if you do this particular diet, um, then you'd have even more benefits. Because I, I could ah. imagine that you're not going to be pushing the sad, the standard American diet. No, why? 
I thought we could all go to Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> um, so the next thing, so like I said, I really think about things in terms of, of anti-aging and metabolic health and muscle health. So for me, the next step would be to really reduce their carbohydrates. We know that the body doesn't process much over 30 grams. Uh, you know, you really create a lot of havoc when you start doing that. So, you know, I, I definitely get a sense of where their carbohydrates are, and I, I pull that way back, right? Um, and so, wait, wait, when someone has a poor diet, they end up relying on liver glycogen to make up for that diet, and then they've got these swings all day long. So your body becomes really adapted or, in essence, maladapted to chasing blood sugar. Um, and then they feel like crap, and then they're hungry, and then they're eating. Right. Um, so what I really like to do is I try to get their, their carbohydrates under control. I don't have uh, my patients do any carbohydrates in the morning. I think that um, it really sets them up for metabolic failure. So I do no carbohydrates in the morning. I really try to backload the carbohydrates. And this is not athletes, right? So we're talking about, um, we're not talking about uh, really training for athletic sport because that changes things a bit. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, even their second meal, I really try to keep it um, minimal carbs. And when I say minimal, I mean breakfast is none. So breakfast would be a lean source of protein and some fat, you know, I know that you like uh, bulletproof coffee or, uh, and you know, I'm not saying like bulletproof coffee, I'm saying maybe some fat and your coffee and some protein. Um, and then the next meal, you know, three to four hours later would be another serving of protein, which a minimum would be 30 grams. You know, between, yeah, around 30. When you're younger, you need less. When you're a little bit older, you need more. But 30 grams is safe, and then 30 grams at dinner. So the minimum, um, and that's protein. That's not carbohydrates. And then if you needed some carbs, at, you know, at the end of the day, then you can have a little bit of sweet potato. You know, um, but really pulling back the carbohydrates. And then the next thing, and probably I should have said this first, is the protein. Protein distribution over time is the biggest thing and the most misunderstood concept, I think, where uh, people really need to understand is that you really need to spread out uh, your protein throughout the day and you have to ha have a certain amount, otherwise the body doesn't see the benefit of, of going through a protein synthesis, right, muscle protein synthesis. So for example, the key amino acid to all this is leucine and you need two and a half grams of leucine which is equal to 30 grams of protein. And you need that spread out throughout the day. And if you have underneath that uh, leucine amount, that protein amount, then the body just recognize was, recognizes what you're eating is calories. And so you're not actually optimizing anything, right? So let's say you're like, wow, well, I'm just going to have two ounces of chicken, but I got my protein, and then I'm going to have veggies and some fat, and that's enough. Well, essentially, you've just added calories, and you've done nothing for... Um, your muscle, right? So in order to fix that, you need to really increase the the protein ounces. You know, you should have around, you should have between four and five. Have some carbohydrates, or not carbohydrates? Carbohydrates in the term in the in uh, terms of veggies, like green veggies above ground, and then a little bit of fat. You know, I don't worry about that so much. Well, let me ask yeah. you to talk about taking the, the macronutrients and the numbers and talk about very specific foods. Um, so 
when you, you, you mentioned um, some meats, can you mention some meats that you would recommend and, and how they, and the types of meats? Like, yeah. is a McDonald's hamburger just as good as a grass-fed burger that you, you know? <laughs> no, but <laughs> that kind you of know stuff. what, I think that's a great question because I use the term gravity-bearing a lot and people are like, what are you talking about? So the protein, so proteins are a lot like carbohydrates in the way that, you know, proteins are different. Right? So carbohydrates are different. An apple is different than a piece of bread. And we always think, oh, one has more starch, one has more sugar. But in that same hand, protein is like that too. Proteins have different amino acids. And we never think about that. Like plant-based proteins, they do not have the same amino acid profile as what I would say gravity-bearing protein is. A gravity-bearing protein is anything that runs around. So chickens run, I know because I've seen them and they're totally gross. Turkeys run around, you know, bison, cows, all of those things, they actually, anything that's gravity bearing has a higher uh, leucine content, right? And, and eggs do too, which is not gravity bearing, but eggs and whey protein, those are kind of like the two outliers, uh, whey isolate. But, um, right, and so the quality, of course, grass fed, grass finished. Um, and then there's fish. So people are like, oh, well, you know, I, had my fish and I had four ounces of fish. Well, fish actually, the amino acid profile in fish is just like when you think about fish, the muscle of fish is not the same. So that actually has less leucine and less protein per ounce. That's about five um, grams per one ounce. So you need actually more to stimulate any kind of muscle protein synthesis for your body. Um, and then you move to plant-based and nothing is a more hot, controversial, you know, really gets people going than their protein sources. You know, it just seems to be very emotional for people. But um, soy and uh, hemp protein, all that stuff, the amino acid profile is, is much more inferior to, when I say inferior, inferior in terms of leucine um, and muscle quality than a gravity-bearing protein. However, you can make up for this by doubling or tripling your serving size. But if you do that, then you double or triple your calories. Right. So, how, about, how about fat? I mean, you know, there's multiple sources of fat. What, what kind of fat do you recommend to your patients? Um, so I like when they cook in coconut oil. I think that the medium chain triglycerides are great. Um, you know, avocado oil, olive oil, monounsaturated duck fat. Um, a little shout out to Danielle. Uh, she totally turned me on to duck fat, and actually, it's a really good source of um, of fat, and it tastes good. Nice. But you know, like <laughs> they don't need to go crazy adding more fat. I mean, the body typically, if you're eating whole, healthy foods, you're gonna get the fat you need. I do think that utilizing fat versus adding more carbohydrates is better. But then the question is, you know, like where's your protein at? And speaking of Danielle, since you did a shout out to her, Danielle Gordon, who's a mutual friend and my nutritionist. Um, so I'm glad you guys are in conversations and informing one another because you're very, you're both very bright. Uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, I appreciate your insights and ideas and concepts and research and work. Uh, I always learn so much talking to you. Um, we just kind of got into the little surface conversations on, on some nutritional topics. Uh, hope to have you back soon to continue our conversation because I know you've done, even including recently, a very interesting talks at the Functional Medicine Conference in California. I think it was just last weekend. We're in 
May of 2016 and a lot of interesting topics that you brought up and were discussed and I'd love to have you back on to talk about those and some other areas of interest of yours. Interested in doing so? Yeah, I can't wait. Sounds cool. great. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. D. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Right,